Everything is tickety-boo, tickety-boo, tickety-boo. Everything is tickety-boo on such a dreamy daily doody Who could be a snickety-poo, snickety-poo, snickety-poo? With the sky so blinkety-blue, it causes one to say... Yes, sirree, everything is tickety-boo here on the American Oxycontinent, from sea to shining sea of slack-jawed faces gaping at amber waves of grainy photographs of the 1950s. We look out with pride at the place where our republic used to be and think, well, that was fun, wasn't it? Indiana, the state that gave us great Americans like John Dillinger and Jim Jones, has now brought the primary season and our national dignity to a virtual end in that noblest of all political spectacles, the complete disaster. What a joy it was to listen to a victory speech from Donald Trump. You don't know the power of the dark side. And an equally inspiring declaration from Bernie Sanders. If we could somehow harness this lightning channel it into the flux capacitor plus the graceful concession from hillary clinton <coughs> and of course a fond farewell from ted cruz this almost certainly means that the final race for the highest office in the land will boil down to clinton and trump just the sort of candidates that george washington or abraham lincoln would have been proud not to be anything like who could look at these two paragons of the American political system without standing just a little taller and saying, don't blame me, I'm from Wisconsin? You know, with freedom comes responsibility. And who the hell wants that? Better to elect an evil mommy or a gangster daddy who promises to keep our entitlements going right up until the rolling blackouts make it too hard to find our way to the breadlines. And what about free speech? <laughs> Let's face it, it was just too noisy. All that fighting and fussing and people having opinions. Now we have two candidates who both believe that our right to criticize our leaders should be curtailed and restricted. You may say that stinks, but you won't say it for long because soon it won't be allowed. Now, there are some people I hear saying, if Donald Trump gets elected, I'm going to move to Canada. Or if Hillary gets elected, I'm going to tear out my eyes, set myself on fire, and jump off a ledge onto a spiked fence while hitting myself in the head with a hammer and drinking battery acid. But as for me, no matter who wins, I'm just going to pack up my bags and move into Barack Obama's imagination. Because there, everything looks like this. My what a wonderful day Plenty of sunshine in my way Zippity-doo-dah, zippity-yay Yes, after eight years of the greatest president the president has ever seen, every American can now look on our future with pride and joy and say right along with Ted Cruz... That's all, book. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Claven, and this is The Andrew Claven Show. All right, folks, you're now listening to Radio Free America. We're broadcasting off the coast of the, in the Pacific Ocean. We, now, you, now you have to subscribe just to keep us alive. The last voice of the Constitution here. Yes, we're, we're kind of, don't let us turn us off, folks. Don't let us turn. You know, we're going to have, uh, not only if you, if you subscribe, not only do you get to watch the country go up in smoke instead of just listening to the country going up in smoke, you also get to participate. Come next Wednesday. We're going to start doing our mailbag. We have already gotten a lot of questions, but I decided there's just too much news today to do a mailbag, too much important stuff to talk about to actually go off topic, off the topic of the news. So 
We're going to start today, next Wednesday, we'll, we'll start uh, bringing your email questions and comments, and possibly even we'll get some video if we can, uh, let you do some, let you be on the show, and then I can subscribe and watch you. Um, <laughs> so, so it's been it's a complete disaster. Right? Ted Cruz stepped down. Uh, John Kasich, as I was driving into the studio, he stepped down. I don't know what, what he was doing. He, I think he, he found he could no longer had a path to utter defeat. He, no, <laughs> he said, I can no longer see my way into complete humiliation, so I'm going to end my campaign. But also, I mean, that's half the story, is that Ted Cruz and John Kasich now have stepped down, making Donald Trump truly what he said he was, the presumptive nominee, but also Hillary Clinton just got <laughs> humiliated by Bernie Sanders again. I mean, that that is the second story. That's not the lead, but it's still pretty important and says a lot about what's going on. So let's take a look. We'll start with Ted Cruz's announcement that he is done. From the beginning, I've said that I would continue on as long as there was a viable path to victory. Tonight, I'm sorry to say, it appears that path has been foreclosed. Together, we left it all on the field in Indiana. We gave it everything we've got. But the voters chose another path. And so, with a heavy heart, but with boundless optimism for the long-term future of our nation. We are suspending our campaign. But hear me now, I am not suspending our fight for liberty. I am not suspending our fight to defend the Constitution to defend the Judeo-Christian values that built America. Our movement will continue. And I give you my word that I will continue this fight with all of my strength and all of my ability. You know, uh, Jeffrey Blahar in the New York Post wrote a piece talking about how Cruz was abandoned by the Republican establishment who is now supporting Trump. And Blahar writes, first, because Cruz forgot that the people he'd been savaging in his own party for attempting to keep the federal government running with a Democratic president and Senate were humans, not cardboard cutouts. Cruz assumed the establishment types he'd spent the last three years labeling liars, frauds, and crypto-Democrats would turn around when faced with the choice between him and Trump and say, ah, yes, strictly business, no hard feelings. That's not how people actually work. There's a second, more calculating reason that the GOP would risk their congressional majority with Trump rather than patch things up with Cruz. They're looking farther down the road than 2016. These people look at Trump, his cult of personality, his incredible ability to generate free media, his demagogic vulgarity as an ephemeral, as an ephemeral once-in-a-generation phenomenon, a black swan event. They suspect that while Trump will lose and it will go hard for the Republican Party in the short run with his downfall, this is as survivable as the loss of 2006 and 2008. It need hardly be said that this sort of behavior is the act of a feeble, corrupt party apparatus. Cruz badly misplayed his hand and now, partly leader, and now party leaders are courting their own destruction by embracing Trump. Not a good scenario. Donald Trump comes out and gracious, 
gracious in victory. He pays uh, tribute to Cruz. I love this. I have to tell you that I've competed all my life. Competitive person. All my life, I've been in competitions, different competitions, whether it's sports or business or now for 10 months politics. And I have to tell you that I have met some of the most incredible competitors that I have ever competed against right here on the Republican Party. You know, we started off with that 17 number. And just so you understand, Ted Cruz, I don't know if he likes me or if he doesn't like me, but he is one hell of a competitor. He is a tough, smart guy. All right, that's Donald Trump. Now, five hours before, or whatever it was, 12 hours before, he's on the morning show on Fox, and he's showing them this picture that was in the National Enquirer that purports to be, it purports to be Rafael Cruz, Cruz's father, his evangelical preacher father, standing next to Lee Harvey Oswald. Listen to this. You know, his father was with Lee Harvey Oswald prior to Oswald's being... Uh, you know, shot. I mean, the whole thing is ridiculous. What, what, what is this right prior to his being shot? And nobody even brings it up. I mean, they don't even talk about that. That was reported, uh, and nobody talks about it. But I think it's horrible. I think it's absolutely horrible that a man can go and do that, what he's saying there. Right. There was a picture out there that reportedly shows um, uh, Raphael Cruz standing with Lee Harvey Oswald. I mean, what, I was, he doing with, what um, was he doing with Lee Harvey Oswald? Right. Shortly before the death, before the shooting, it's, re- it's horrible. See, why why would anybody say that a man who, like that would be unfit for office? <laughs> it's like, it's un- unbelievable. He's doing this. And then it's but it, he thinks just like Cruz thought he could take down Mitch McConnell and attack the establishment Republicans and then make friends with them later on. He thinks he can do this to the party and he's going to do this to people and everything's going to be fine. Listen to this. This is the next part of his his uh, victory speech. This country, which is very, very divided in so many different ways, is going to become one beautiful, loving country. And we're going to love each other. We're going to cherish each other. We're going to take care of each other. And we're going to have great economic development. And we're not going to let other countries take it away from us because that's what's been happening for far too many years. And we're not going to do it anymore. We're not going to do it anymore. It's like the Sermon on the Mount, isn't it? It's just like we're going to love each other. It's the Sermon on the Mount if Jesus was a corrupt mob-connected real estate developer. That's what they used to call mutatis mutandis. And that's a Latin phrase. It means once you've made the, the proper adjustments, Everything is the same. If once you adjust, you know, once you adjust that, we and one, on the Sermon on the Mount you have Jesus, and in that speech you have Donald Trump. <laughs> once you make that adjustment, it's exactly the same. You can't tell the difference. All right. So the, God, this is amazing that this guy is going to be running for president. All right. So what happens now, and what do we do now? I've never said I was never Trump, and I've never said I was never Hillary. I haven't made. I haven't made my decision yet. And I'm not going to make my decision until I'm quite certain what is the moral path. Because I'm not entirely sure that withholding your vote is a moral thing to do. It may be one of those things that makes you feel moral. I'm not voting for these people. One of my friends last night said, we're going to have to choose between the evil of two lessers, which <laughs> I have very witty friends. And I, I, you know, I think I'm, I haven't decided yet whether withholding my vote uh, is is quite the right thing to do, or may just make me feel like I'm above it all. But the, the but the key thing is, last night after this victory, a lot of people on Twitter, some of them my good friends, were tweeting this triumphalist 
angry Trumpian stuff that anybody who says never Trump, it's your fault if Trump loses. It's your fault. Now, you people, I blame you. If, if Trump loses, it's going to be your fault, you never Trumpers. First, I don't owe anybody my vote. I don't owe, my vote belongs to me. you got to win my vote. There's people who said, well, nobody showed up for Mitt Romney. It's not their job to show up for Mitt Romney. I don't work for Mitt Romney. I don't work for Donald Trump. I work for me. I work for me. I'm going to show up and vote for somebody if he wins my vote. On top of which, <clears throat> as things stand right now, just talking about the way things look right now, Trump is way, way far behind. Here's Nate Silver in the New York Times, a former newspaper. But Nate Silver is a, is a good is good at this. He's good at crunching the numbers. And here's what he says. A general election matchup between Donald J. Trump and Hillary Clinton became all but certain on Tuesday after Mr. Trump's decisive victory in Indiana. Trump would begin that matchup at a significant disadvantage. Yes, it's still a long way until Election Day, and Mr. Trump has already upended the conventional wisdom many times, but this is when early horse race polls start to give a rough sense of the November election, and Mr. Trump trails Mrs. Clinton by around 10 percentage points in early general election surveys, both nationally and in key battleground states. He even trails in some polls of several states where Mitt Romney won in 2012, like North Carolina, Arizona, Missouri, and Utah. Could Mr. Trump overtake Mrs. Clinton? Sure. Mrs. Clinton is very unpopular herself. Her polling lead is a snapshot in time before the barrage of attack ads that are sure to come her way. There have been 10-point shifts over the general election season before, even if it's uncommon. But there isn't much of a precedent for huge swings in races with candidates as well-known as Mr. Trump and Mrs. Clinton. A majority of Americans may not like her, but they say they're scared of him to have a chance He'll need to change that. Now, that is the conventional wisdom, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. I mean, as we're looking at this, Trump doesn't have a chance. It's funny. I've got people telling me that Trump is going to destroy her and people telling me that Trump doesn't stand a chance. Right now, just looking at the numbers, not looking about emotion or what you think is going to happen, looking at the numbers, Trump is the underdog. He's really going to have to come from behind. But what you do have to take into account is this. The Republican Party vanished last night. The Republican Party, as we have known it for the last 50 years or so, is now gone. Trump, as they say, has done a hostile takeover. For the last 50 years, the GOP was where conservatives lived. We were sometimes unhappy that a lot of us were not as conservative as others of us. I mean, somebody like me, who's pretty right-wing when it comes to limiting government and obeying the Constitution, didn't like the more moderate types and would get angry that they were kind of controlling it, but, but they actually had the numbers to do that. That's over. Trump is not a conservative. There's nothing conservative about him. He said himself he was basically a Democrat. He believes in the entitlement state. He believes, he, you know, he pretends not to believe in abortion, but he believes in that. He believes that the government should be doing this and the government should be doing that. All the stuff. He, and he's never read the Constitution. Let's let's face it. I mean, it's just a crinkly brown piece of paper to him. That somebody, how come they were using feathers? Why didn't they get a pen? What, 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 they were wearing wigs and using feathers. What's going on? So, that, you know, that's Donald Trump's view of the Constitution. So now he has taken over the party, and they call him a populist. You can call him a populist, but what does that mean? That doesn't. All a populist does is tell people what they want to hear, and people want to hear different things at different times. So he's telling people what they want to hear. We really don't know how he'll govern. I'm very concerned about his fascist instincts, these instincts that I will fix it, that it's up to me, that I can do this. I'm the one who's going to turn everything around. So... The question becomes that now that people like me are homeless or out of the party, we may, a lot of us may just say, I'm sorry, but you've lost us. I'm not voting for your crappy candidate. That's it. You know, we're gone. The question is, 
are, the, are there enough populists in the middle and at the edge, the fringe of the Democrat Party, for him to bring over? Because in other words, once you steal the party, you got to recreate the party. And so that's where the conventional wisdom, I, to me, just drops off the ledge into shadow. I, I mean, I think Nate Silver is right. All the numbers tell us that Trump can't win. You know, the women hate him, blah, 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 blah. But, but this party is now, you know, people kept saying we need a third party. This is the third party. It's just that the other party is gone. So they're still back to two again. He, we could rename this party. It's not the Republican Party anymore. And so we're going to find out if there are all these people. It's going to be a very, very close race. You know, the New York Times is is gloating over this. They have a... a uh, an editorial today saying, ah, oh, the Republicans deserve this, and all they ever cared about was winning elections, which I love. You know, and I was thinking, like, what are they gloating about? Their candidate is like Al Capone. I mean, they've got this corrupt, horrible, desiccated old woman who sits around saying, they've been trying to get me for 20 years, but they haven't gotten me yet. She sounds like, you know, John Gotti sitting <laughs> in a bar in Little Italy, you know, yeah, the feds keep coming after me, but I keep outsmarting them, you know. And look who's beating her. We have, <laughs> like, Bernie Sanders. He wants to let, sh show Sanders' speech last night. What this campaign is about is telling you that no president, not Bernie Sanders or anybody else, can transform this country in the way we need change all by himself. Can't be done by one person. Because the powers that be on Wall Street, in corporate America, in the corporate media, in wealthy campaign contributors, these folks are so powerful that no one president can do it alone. What we need and what this campaign is about is a political revolution. And what that revolution means is that millions of people today are beginning to stand up and fight back and demand a government which represents all of us, not just a handful of billionaires. And then he got back into his DeLorean and went to 1890 or wherever. You know, the thing is, this, this philosophy, this socialist philosophy, grew up to a large degree out of the Industrial Revolution. I mean, it grew up when all these people, the, the world of agriculture completely was transformed into a new world, and suddenly there was all, all these conditions that didn't exist before. You know, people working 10, 12-hour days with, you know, six-day weeks. They, they were torn away from their families, torn away from their communities. And Marx was totally wrong because he was wrong about what the source of income is. He thought that the worker created the car, say. He would say, you know, the car is just a bunch of scrap metal until the worker puts it together. But that's not true. The car is just a bunch of scrap metal until the guy invents a car. See, <laughs> that's why that's why those guys end up as billionaires, these billionaires that uh, Sanders is attacking and demonizing. Those are the guys who say, you know, I bet I could take that, you know, dinosaur tar and turn it into oil and put it in your car. You know, I think that, that would be a good idea. That's why those guys become billionaires. They don't become billionaires because they rip off the money from the poor workers. But, but at least Marx, at least Karl Marx was addressing a situation that existed then. We are in a new revolution now. We're in a revolution of technology, a revolution of information, a revolution of globalization. We may soon be in a space revolution and a uh, life expectancy revolution. 
that I'm just going to miss it. I'll be like the last guy to die, but the, but the rest of you are going to be here forever. I hope I hope you're enjoying it because you're not going anywhere. You know? And and so and and so they bring up this old philosophy, and this is the person who's beating Hillary Clinton. And you want to know why he's beating Hillary Clinton? Because Hillary Clinton is despicable. She's disgusting. You know, the next um, the next primary is in West Virginia, coal country, right? Here, let me show you this picture. A coal, an unemployed coal miner confronts Hillary Clinton and about her comments about the coal industry. And I just want you to, if, you can, if you're a subscriber and you can see it, look at her face, but just listen to what she says. I just want to know how you can say you're going to put a lot of coal miners out of, out of jobs and then come in here and tell us how you're going to be our friend because those people out there don't see you as a friend. I know that, Bo. And, you know, I'm, I don't know how to explain it other than what I said was totally out of context from what I meant, because I have been talking about helping coal country for a very long time, and I did put out a plan last summer. And it was a misstatement, because what I was saying is that the way things are going now, we will continue to lose jobs. That's what I meant to say, and I think that that seems to be supported by the facts. I didn't mean that we were going to do it. What I said was that is going to happen unless we take action to try to help and prevent it. Okay, here's the comment that she actually made, word for word. I'm the only candidate which has a policy about how to bring economic opportunity using clean, renewable energy as the key into coal country because we're going to put a lot of coal miners and coal companies out of business. She just looked that man in the face and lied like a dog. She lied like a hound. I mean, it is unbelievable. It is unbelievable. And that is so Clinton. It's so Clintonian. I mean, it's like the word in the dictionary. Next to lying is that woman's face. So when, you know, the New York Times makes fun of us, the Republicans, for getting caught with a guy like Trump, okay, fair enough, but look what they've got, and look who's beating her. I mean, only the Democrat machine is keeping Sanders, only the Democrat machine is keeping this from being a race between Sanders and Trump. I mean, everybody is unhappy, and the fringe has taken over both parties. And the only good thing you can say about Hillary Clinton is that she's a, a centrist, corrupt machine politician. I mean, she's not a, a fringe candidate. She's actually, you know, where the Democrat Party lives in corruption and dis despicableness. Okay. So what are we going to do? You know, what are we going to do? What are we people who still believe in the Constitution, who are the conservatives, who just got disowned? We just got disowned by our party. What are we going to do? Well, the thing is, we are going to find a moral way. We are going to find the moral way to vote. We're going to listen to what they say. We're going to listen to watch the situation. It's, it still hasn't worked out. There are many surprises. There's at least one big surprise still coming. I can feel it. I can feel one big surprise still coming. I don't know what it is, but it will be there. You know, I, but I get these letters. I mean, today my mailbox was filled with these letters from people in despair. From people, oh, my God, the country's finished. We're done and all this stuff. And I have to say, our tolerance for pain has really gone down. This is a country, we had a civil war in this country, right? We had people shooting at each other. 600,000 people, all of them Americans, killed each other in this country once. You know, we've been at, we had a Great Depression, where people were standing in the street on bread lines instead of getting their welfare mailed to them at home. We've had a terrible things that have gone. There's no hall pass out of history. There's no, you know, people ask me this all the time. They'll say, like, I'm in college. I'm in college and all my professors are liberal. What should I do? How do I 
state my conservative beliefs. I'm in Hollywood. I get this too because I'm in Hollywood. I'm in Hollywood. How do I, you know, what do I do? How do I? And what they're really asking me is how can I have courage without consequences? How can I have courage without pain? You know, how, you know, because I, and I always say the same thing to them. Depends what risks you're willing to take and what pain you're willing to suffer. That's, it's, that's up to you. That's up to you. Because all of us watch movies where the hero runs out and he runs out into gunfire and he gets shot in the arm and he kills the bad guy. And then at the end, he's, his arm is in a sling and he's winning the award and he's got the girl on his arm and everything's great. But you run out into gunfire knowing you might get killed. You know, the guy who gets killed, maybe they don't make a movie about him because it's not heroic and it's not triumphant, but he has just as much courage. He's doing just the same thing. And the thing is, our culture is built on a tradition. It's built on a religion, a religious tradition, which we now call the Judeo-Christian religion, which I think is, is fair. Judaism and Christianity are the only two religions that are based on that principle of disaster, that things go terribly wrong. The Jewish Bible, the Old Testament, is the story of the rise and fall of an empire. The empire falls in the, at the crisis in that book. And of course, the Christian religion, you know, I wrote this on Good Friday and people were screaming at me, is based on a disaster. It's based on a man who comes and says, the kingdom of God has come, the kingdom of God has come, and they kill him. It's a judicial murder. You know, I said this on Good Friday, and people were writing me these angry, you don't know anything about theology. It wasn't, it wasn't a disaster. It was a wonderful, wonderful triumph. And my feeling is, well, if it was such a wonderful triumph, how come Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane praying to get out of it? You know, like, dear Lord, get me out of this. You know, it was, from, from God's point of view, from God's point of view, it was salvation. From our point of view, it was us murdering the son of God, you know, it was, it was from our point of view, what we did as human beings and what we saw as human beings and what Jesus experienced as a pure human being was pain and suffering and disaster. And that's what our religion is based on. The message of our religion, the message of that moment is that we are always murdering God, but God never dies. We're always murdering the truth, but the truth never dies. So the thing is, the situation that we're in is that you know, it's, it's funny that these two religions based on disaster should give rise to the most successful culture in human history, but it's also not that strange when you think about it because disasters will come. The future tends to get better. The future tends to get better because people are smart and they're clever and they're solving problems all the time and there's so many good people. So, you know, the, the bad people have this inordinate effect because it's easy to tear down a building. It's easy to fly a plane into a building. Try inventing a plane. Try building a building. Those are the hard things to do. But most people are doing those things. So the future gets better. But bad things happen along the way. If you were alive in Germany in 1930 and then you were alive in Germany in 2001, in 2001, You'd say, wow, things are a lot better in Germany. But you would have had to have gone through World War II and the Holocaust. It really, when, you, when you're praying for things to go well, you're just praying for good luck. You're praying that your part of life goes well, okay? And our part of life here in America has gone awfully well for the last 50 or 60 years. And now we're in some danger war. You know, now we're in some trouble. And so you, you have a simple assignment. You have a simple assignment. As, as Spike Lee would say, do the right thing. You know, you have the simple assignment to be the person that you are supposed to be in a time of trouble. This is not so far tyranny. It's not so far a civil war. This is a bad election with two bad choices. We're going to have to figure out how to make it through. 
don't whine about it. You know, <laughs> you just you don't get you don't get a hall pass out of history. You know, this is it. This is our our piece of history. It's our piece of history. It's our duty to live as the God to embody the God who never dies, the truth that never dies. And it's our job to show that in the world and display it to our children and display it to other people so that when the cloud passes over, they remember which way to go. We're holding the light. Hold the light, and people will follow it. All right, that's what I have to say on this depressing day. I admit it is a depressing day, but there is no call for despair. Stuff I like that I hate. This is, <laughs> I've been doing this all week. This is the last one, because tomorrow we'll get some good music in here. I, I'm not going to end with bad music. But I've been talking about stuff, Not it's not just stuff I hate. It's stuff that everybody loves. It's really popular. It stinks. And yesterday I talked about the movie Avatar, which is a terrible, terrible, dishonest movie. And I said Avatar is the imagine of movies. It's the song imagine of movies. Well, imagine is the avatar of songs. Imagine is one of the worst songs ever written. Hugely popular. Every time they talk about John Lennon and pay tribute to him, they have him at, just listen to just a quick uh, clip. Imagine there's no heaven It's easy if you try First of all, that music, bang, 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 <laughs> is the dullest music in the world. However, I, I'm going to read you something I wrote a long time ago for the Claremont Review of Books. I wrote uh, an article about atheism. I'm just going to read you the first couple of paragraphs because I can't say it any better than I said it in this piece, so I'm just going to read it to you. Of all the silly pop songs ever written, perhaps the silliest is John Lennon's Imagine. A wop bop a ram a lop bam boom has more philosophical depth as a lyric and indeed contributes more to the happiness of human society than Lenin's thudding inanities, which are rendered truly inspiring only by being reduced to a one-word poster on a teenager's wall. Lenin, you'll no doubt remember, asked us to imagine humanity without faith, countries, or possessions. With nothing to kill or die for, he promises, the world will live as one. Now, you may call me a dreamer, but it seems to me just such a world was imagined long before in the 1956 film Invasion of the Body Snatchers. There, aliens begin to transform the human race into Lenin's world, a soulless army of automatons living as one without any of those bothersome passions that give rise to religions, nations, or private property. Quote, love, desire, ambition, faith, one of the aliens in tones, perfectly prefiguring Lenin, without them, life is so simple. Of course, what the horror film considers, which the utopian song ignores, is the nature of the human beast, the dark side of our humanity, the killing, the greed, the injustice, is exactly that, the dark side of our humanity, our love, our yearning, our loyalty, everything that makes us what we are. You can have a perfect world where you, ha you can have people to live in it. You can't have both. So 
It's an in, Lenin's Imagine is an inhuman song. What the left has always been trying to solve, the problem they've always been trying to solve, is our humanity, our gender, our fact that some of us are men and some of us are women, the fact that some of us are smart and some of us are dumb, the fact that some of us are hardworking and some of us are lazy. You can't solve that problem without destroying what makes us what we are. And that's why Imagine is such a bad song, because it's a dishonest vision of a world that would be a nightmare. Okay, and we'll continue in that world <laughs> tomorrow. Tomorrow we're going to have Henry Olson on, the great observer, just a National Review's terrific observer of the election and of numbers and of the Republican Party who will explain it all to us. So be there for that. I'm Andrew Claven. This is The Andrew Claven Show. Thanks for listening. <laughs>